Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The FT. Welcome back to Banking Weekly with me, Patrick Jenkins. This week, the US Federal Housing Finance Agency hits banks with lawsuits over the selling of mortgage bonds in the run-up to the credit crisis. It could be a very messy situation on all sides. It's bad for the banks in terms of its more legal uncertainty at the worst possible moment. It's a possible multi-billion dollar hit, even with a favourable settlement. So none of that is good news. The sale of shares in UK banks, Lloyds and RBS, looks necessarily to be on hold. RBS and Lloyds are both now trading at about half the price that the government paid when it bought these stakes in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. So even the plausibility of clawing any of that back looks unlikely. And with just a week to go before publication of Sir John Vickers' long-awaited report on banking reform, we ask, what can we expect? There's two main strands. One is financial stability and ensuring that the banking system in the UK can withstand the kind of shocks that it's seen in recent years. The other is competition, and that's mainly focused around the retail side and small businesses. Joining me this week is the FT's investment banking correspondent, Megan Murphy, and retail banking correspondent, Charlene Goff. Let's start in the US and with the regulator there, the FHFA, the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which has filed lawsuits against 17 banks, international financial groups, all of them, including Bank of America, JP Morgan Chase, Goldman Sachs, Deutsche, the list goes on, including quite a few UK banks as well. Megan, you've been looking at this story. Some people close to the Obama administration say that they actually did not want these cases to be brought because they are worried about the impact of both this onslaught of subprime mortgage-related litigation that still is a lag from the financial crisis, as well as what looks like a quickly contracting, almost recessionary economy in the U.S. as well as in Europe, that they're very worried about this impact that it will have on banks in terms of lending and and stimulating some sort of growth. So it's interesting on that level. And on another level, also, because Royal Bank of Scotland, as you mentioned, is one of the banks that's included in this case, which is, as we know, 83% owned by the UK taxpayer, you almost have this also unusual situation of Washington taking action against London in some respects over, again, deals dating back to the subprime crisis era. So at a whole, I guess the optimists looking at this case would say this is a very speculative piece of litigation that has been put together by one of the most notoriously aggressive plaintiff firms in America known as Quinn Emanuel, which is a law firm that has tremendous experience with bringing class action style lawsuits. And that actually, if you're looking at these deals that were structures and these portfolios of mortgage pools that were bought by Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae, the bank's argument is, look, these were the most sophisticated investors you could find. These people, this is their business of guaranteeing mortgages. And some of the banks over the weekend came out and said that In fact, some of the specific mortgages that Freddie and Fannie through the FHFA are now objecting to were actually mortgage pools that they specifically asked to be included in various different securitized pools. So I think the banks feel 
generally that they have a pretty strong case in defending this and saying that Freddie and Fannie knew what they were buying when they participated in these deals. But then again, when we look back and we put it into comparison, we say that the notorious Goldman Sachs abacus deal, which is a similar situation where an investor in that deal claimed they didn't have full knowledge of the portfolio and they actually didn't know that one of the counterparties to the deal was actually shorting the mortgages in the pool. Again, there were many people who thought Goldman had a very strong legal defense against that and they ended up settling for $550 million U.S. million. So I think... And in that case, regulators yeah. were quite deeply involved with Absolutely. with that. Now, what does this case mean for the regulatory inspection of the broader picture of these deals? Well, I mean, I think the biggest thing is that banks were hoping that this activity in terms of examination of the securitization of subprime mortgage pools and the activity that went on then, you know, is pretty much over. And they'd sort of hoped this was never going to happen, that there would, well, there would still be piecemeal legal action from various different investors, that you wouldn't have this sort of federal intervention on this level of going back. Because at the end of the day, if you're going to defend this case in court, what you're going to do is you're going to go back through all the emails with Freddie and Fannie and say, look at your knowledge that you had. And what you could end up with is this very messy scenario where actually it's going to show that all the parties involved didn't know what they were selling, didn't understand the risk that was involved with these deals, didn't involve just how poor quality a lot of these mortgages were. As Charlene was noting this morning, like even if some of these mortgages existed. So it could be a very messy situation on all sides. It's bad for the banks in terms of it's more legal uncertainty at the worst possible moment. It's a possible multi-billion dollar hit, even with a favorable settlement. So none of that is good news. In terms of all the litigation we've seen, I think the banks would say we feel more comfortable that we'll be able to get to a less um, less onerous settlement than some of the stuff we've seen in the past. But it's still a huge huge dark mark over their future. And it'll rumble on and on and on by the sense. Is the estimate we're seeing on on most legal experts. It's just another two years of uncertainty. And which leads us nicely on to our second topic of the day, which is the idea of privatisation of Royal Bank of Scotland and Lloyd's. And with those banks now, as we reported at the weekend, Charlene, the prospects of reprivatizing those banks, so both of them substantially owned by the UK government, looks a pretty distant prospect now, doesn't it? Looking back at the beginning of this year, you know, around the time we had the sort of interim report from Sir John Vickers laying out his plans, even then, when things looked a lot rosier than they do now, did we think the government could sell these anytime soon. I mean, we're already looking like at least a year into the distant. Now it's become clear that that's going to be a lot longer than that. People saying, you know, it'd be virtually impossible to sell these stakes, this parliament, pushing them back into 2015. And, And there's a few reasons for that. I mean, obviously, in the last few months, the global economy has gone into turmoil again. You know, we had sharp market falls throughout August. RBS and Lloyds are both now trading at about half the price that the government paid when it bought these stakes in the immediate aftermath of the financial crisis. So even the plausibility of clawing any of that back looks unlikely. But, you know, they're really saying that it would be very difficult to make that initial sale and for an investor to have the confidence to come in when the regulatory picture is so uncertain. And the big debate last week on the ICB's report was when it could practically implement its reforms. And, you know, people are thinking that could be a long way forward. That's a very neat segue again, Charlene, into our final topic for today, which is the Vickers Commission, otherwise known as the Independent Commission on Banking, which in exactly a week's time on the 12th of September is due to come back with its long-awaited 
conclusions on banking reform. As you say, one of the uncertainties surrounding both Lloyd's but more RBS really in terms of the privatisation of those banks is if you ring fence the, the core operations, carve those out from at RBS, the investment banking operations that they have, you cannot really, the argument of the bankers anyway, is that you cannot really know the genuine impact of what that means for cost of funding for each individual bit of that bank until it's actually in place. So even if the government were to pass legislation in the short term, by delaying implementation as is the talk of the town now because of the state of the markets, although that's good news in some ways and most banks would be very grateful for that delay, actually for RBS it's probably very much a two-edged sword. We've been talking about it for weeks and weeks on the podcast. Just give us a quick snap judgment of you know what we should be looking out for next Monday. There's two main strands to it. One is financial stability and ensuring that the banking system in the UK can withstand the kind of shocks that it's seen in recent years. The other is competition, and that's mainly focused around the retail side um, and small businesses. So I think focus next Monday, I mean, the biggest change for sure is on the stability side. That will take the form of this sort of ring fencing of the retail and other core activities such as small business loans. And that effectively means banks will have to build a wall around those activities, those that are deemed too valuable to be put at risk in the event of a future financial crisis. So we knew that was coming. And a few things that we're really eager to know now is a the more clarity on timing. Now, I think, you know, we covered that. There's been various leaks coming out over recent days and this kind of wrangle that's been seen in the political circles with George Osborne and and Vince Cable gradually coming together to realise that they can't do this quickly. It seems David Cameron is still the sort of one missing link a little bit. He is keen not to do anything that will, you know, damage the economy, but likewise doesn't want to give Labour the ability to come and attack him for being easy on the banks. So that's all still going on in the background. But largely, we know that you know this isn't going to happen anytime soon banks will be given at least till 2015 and possibly till 2019 to do this the big unknown yeah. will be how it really affects the corporate side of banks business and exactly where this line will be carved through and there's been a huge amount of debate on this with banks and industry lobbyists putting forward their views in recent weeks. If I had to make a prediction, I think maybe we won't get anything that specific on this, that it could be something that, you know, Vickers realises, you know, too prescriptive reform could be quite damaging and it will leave this to the regulators and so on to formulate with individual banks for whom the repercussions will affect very differently. The other important thing that we should mention as well is the the other side of the the Vickers report on competition in retail banking and your interesting scoop that you had in today's paper on Lloyd's coming up with a kind of last ditch peace offering really on that transaction. Give us a, a quick summary of that. Well, as our listeners will hopefully remember, one of the big shocks in the interim report from the ICB was that it said they wanted Lloyds to sell more branches than the EU had stipulated when it sort of set out the, the remedies for the state aid for the bailout Lloyds received. That was certainly the implication, wasn't exactly. it? That they talked about substantially enhancing or something. Absolutely. Yeah. And very much, you know, while it wasn't said categorically, you know, everyone who was involved said, you know, clearly Sir John Vickers wanted the number of branches to be increased from the 630 it is currently. Lloyd's came out very strongly then to say, you know, there's absolutely no evidence to show that it should have to sell more branches. And ever since, it's obviously been behind the scenes, sort of scurrying around, thinking how that they can appease the commission without 
them coming down tough on the number of branches it has to sell. And one quite interesting way I think that they've come up with is to use one of the brands that they were having to sell, Cheltenham and Gloucester, which traditionally has just been a mortgage and savings brand, to start offering current accounts. And this is interesting largely because it's the current account market that the ICB is most concerned about, where it thinks the competitive yeah. position... To have an extra player there is yeah. obviously uh, a very uh, interesting way to try and... Exactly. Uh, ramp and that so, up. Yeah. you know, Lloyds could effectively say, right, we're going to start launching current accounts from C&G, we're going to try and go very aggressively into the market, win customer share, from other banks and then package them up and sell them to the new buyer. And so they could potentially have around 6% of the market rather than the 4.6% that they get at the moment under the original terms. To be honest, that would be a fairly powerful competitor. That's about what Nationwide, the largest building society, has and about what Halifax had when Lloyds bought it. Well, we'll see what John Vickers has to say about that, if anything, next Monday. We'll also be watching, of course, still very turbulent markets the end of this week brings uh, a key deadline for participation in the sovereign debt write-down agreement on Greek sovereign debt with banks participating there and seeing whether they hit the 90% threshold for participating. It's a key moment for the Eurozone. But we'll debate all of that next week, I'm sure. That's all we have time for today. All that's left is for me to thank Megan and Charlene in the studio. Banking Weekly is produced by LJ Filatrani. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts.